all CEOs, me included, we don't actually know what we're doing. They're all sharks, so all you got to do, though, is no shark bait. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. <laughs> we can capture all of the wallet share. First place you start is with the product. That's just the first nut. This is the Capital Stack. Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where I talk to founders, operators, and investors about all things value creation in startups. Today, I am talking to Matthew Patinsky, the godfather of educational technology. He is the, <laughs> he is the founder, uh, was the co-founder and um, of Black board, which is the original LMS that hit the markets back in the 90s and pretty much paved the way to the LMS industry. Um, since then, he has sold that company after taking it private or excuse me, taking it public and uh, now is uh, the founder and CEO of Parchment. Matt, how you doing? I'm well, thank you for having me. I am super excited to have you. Uh, would love to understand a little bit more about your backstory and how you got into trying to solve um, technology issues within education. Happy to. And you um, were very kind with my introduction. You might have given me a little bit of a promotion, so I'll, I'll also set the record straight. But uh, I did co-found Blackboard in 1997. Uh, my background is education. I went to college to be a social studies teacher and somehow found my way, instead of going into the classroom, into the world of education policy. And so after graduating a, um, with my master's degree, I started doing consulting with KPMG Consulting with universities and found myself largely focused on helping them set up the big administrative systems that run any enterprise, but higher ed included. So the people softs of the world that run HR and finance and so on. And it occurred to me that universities were investing millions and millions of dollars in their administrative computing and investing millions of dollars in their networks. Um, so back then, before Wi-Fi was too prevalent, it was a port per pillow or two ports for every dorm room. And there was no software that made that useful for teaching and learning. So here, the whole point of a school and university is instruction. And so much of their technology investment was on hardware and administrative computing. So that was sort of the genesis of the idea for Blackboard. What would it look like to have, in essence, a front office system for universities, software that would help faculty deliver instruction? And we went off to the races, which we can talk about. I mean, talk, I mean, dude, I mean, that's talk about a zero to one innovation. Um, I used Blackboard in high school uh, as well as college. And now LMS is pretty much table stakes for corporate, corp corporations, educational systems, training. I mean, did, I mean, what was the initial wedge that you felt was the, um, the key to unlock, you know, the rest of this platform? 
Yeah, and that's where I always want to be careful because I, I personally don't believe in the idea of an original idea. <laughs> so <laughs> everything builds on everything. Right. And at the time we started Blackboard, there was a, a wonderful professor, Murray Goldberg, who had created a tool called WebCT. You know, there were there were early efforts, but what they were largely focused on is um, they were kind of like authoring tools for instructors who didn't know HTML, but wanted to create a class website. So I think our big innovation was less figuring out that, you know, the internet would be used for instruction and there would need to be a system. And it was more recognizing that this wasn't a kind of one-off marginal activity and it wasn't an authoring tool for individual faculty, but instead that it really was a university-wide system. Um, And and a bunch of application capabilities beyond just the kind of creation of the course website. So without getting, you know, too into the weeds about, uh, about Blackboard. So um, there was definitely something in the air about the internet and instruction and early adopting faculty wanting to use it. I think where we made the leap was believing that one day every school and every university and almost every course would involve the web in the instructional process and you would need more of an enterprise system as opposed to kind of, uh, you know, individual desktop authoring type tool. And by then was the student information system, the back office platform that you spoke of, was it considered a pretty mature product? I think so. I mean, this is pre-cloud and ironically, many SISs are still pre-cloud. They're still (laughs) on-premise. But yeah, the, the student information system is a critical system, handles scheduling and student records and all the things you need to administratively run a place. But it's not the point of an institution. The point of an institution is teaching and learning and to a certain extent, research and service. So it fell to us that there was this disconnect. And in fact, if you visited many universities, um, the IT organization was very skewed towards the people that ran the servers and the network. They were kind of at the top of the pecking order. Next down would be the people that ran the administrative applications. Academic computing, not to put it down, but was sort of like the overhead carts that would (laughs) come in if you were going to show a movie. I mean, it wasn't quite like that, but academic computing was definitely the lowest status part of technology. Now, if you visit a university, odds are most CIOs came out of academic computing. That's how much of a transformation uh, higher ed has gone through in terms of using technology for teaching and learning and then also for retention and lots of other activities beyond just administrative computing. Because that's essentially showcasing their work product, their courses, their curriculum, um, you know, how how they're delivering it to the students, what kind of experience the students are having. So I could see how it really changed the scripts I'm I'm fascinated with platform shifts, um, especially lately when we're in a world where it seems most things are digitized and we're in an era that cloud companies have become huge, especially vertical SaaS companies. So do you feel like the LMS shift, I know early days, I, I believe Blackboard was on-prem and then eventually moved to the cloud. Did you, Do you feel like there isn't, do you feel like the LMS movement or the emerging of the market was because um, 
student information systems were still on-prem and you kind of had this availability and the timing was really great to be able to scale into the market with a solution that is scalable. And I guess second part of the question is, is do you feel like there's another platform opportunity within education? Yeah, I think looking back, in many ways, Blackboard was the victim of platform shift as opposed to the beneficiary of it. So we certainly benefited and I personally benefited coming of age, you know, as the internet was impacting lots of different verticals, right? And I was just lucky enough to be in education and, you know, with my co-founders to be able to think about and be part of how the internet impacts teaching and learning. Born, you know, the old saying, born a decade earlier, a decade later, you know, who knows whether that opportunity would have been available. But we were on-prem um, because, yeah, the cloud wasn't a concept. I don't, I don't think bandwidth. I don't think the mm-hmm. compute services were, were there. You know, you, you, you think of Blackboard then as, uh, which it was, server software on-prem as an enterprise application. But it was different than a lot of enterprise applications in that students are using it every single day. Mm-hmm. Students are taking, you know, 30 students are in an assessment, hitting submit at the same time. In our heyday, Blackboard was probably one of the most, you know, visited websites if it had been, you know, a single site, uh, just given the level of adoption, and the level of usage. Um, but we were on-prem and it wasn't really until Instructure, one of Blackboard's competitors came out with the Canvas LMS. They really doubled down on the cloud shift And I think one reason why they were a very effective competitor to Blackboard was taking out all the software, having a more scalable, centrally managed, rapidly innovative platform. So Blackboard was kind of a victim of that as opposed to a beneficiary. And so did any SIS try to build onto the LMS functionality or were they just too too stodgy? So it's interesting The the owner of Blackboard now, so we... We built Blackboard through a bunch of venture rounds, including strategic financing, you know, from Microsoft and Dell and and AOL and Pearson. We then went public in 2004, and then a private equity firm acquired the company in late 2010, early 2011. Um, But now that private equity firm has sold Blackboard to a company called Anthology. And the big idea of Anthology is exactly where you're going, which is... Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it be nice if you had a single provider for both the student information system and the learning management system, and you could have an end-to-end solution? I personally don't believe in that. I personally think that the kind of user experience expertise you need, the kind of workflow expertise you need, the kind of domain expertise you need, and things like financial aid and scheduling, you know, and those kinds of things are just very different from the kind of user experience and expertise you need around teaching and learning. So trying to think of analogies, but, you know, just as Salesforce and NetSuite are, right, two different companies, um, I think, and there's value in integration and you want to get the integration right. I, I don't see a world in which there's one system to rule them all. I think front office academic computing, back office administrative computing are their own, you know, their own, their own thing. And not everything needs to be bundled. Not everything needs to be bundled and companies have to be good at things. And it's hard to be good at everything. And particularly the SIS is in some sense a more mature category, but Mm -hmm. even that's changing, right? I mean, imagine 
going through something like course registration now. Like when you and I did it, you'd get a, a catalog and you'd have to kind of figure out what you needed to take for your degree major. And maybe you'd ask some people if they took the professor. Now move into a world where you can go in and it's immediately done the degree audit. It knows exactly the courses you need to take. It's looked at your prior academic performance and it's starting to recommend particular sections, particular courses. You know, it's telling you that if you took this course, you'd also be getting credit against this degree major if you were to change degrees. You know, I mean, it's just so the SAS is going through a lot of change, um, but it's still a lot more mature. The LMS, I think, has a lot of opportunity for innovation. I don't think you want one company doing both. Yeah, I uh, I remember you you used to have to get an advisor. You had to book a time with your advisor, and they had to pull out the booklet and then interpret yeah. uh, for you. I was always too drunk to do it myself. I needed, um, you know, some kind of help. Fair enough. God, college was crazy. Um, okay, so what's what's the so tell me about parchment and tell me about the transition into parchment. Yeah, so parchment is something that I started to think a little bit about at Blackboard. So at Blackboard, we were about bringing education online, creating the course website, supporting students still going to campus, you know, classes every day, or maybe pure virtual online distance learning. Um, but at the end of the day, what you graduate with is your credential, right? You graduate with a transcript, you graduate with a diploma certificate. Nowadays, there's things called digital badges, but you graduate with the credential and it's the credential. If it's a high school degree, that's going to be the key to college admissions if it's your university transcript, it's going to be the key to credit transfer if you're going to change colleges. And, um, you know, your college degree is critical to getting jobs, to getting into graduate school. It's the credential. And as much as technology was changing teaching and learning, it wasn't changing the credential. The credential was still this paper-based symbolic thing. Even transcripts are just courses and credits and grades. It says very little about what people know and how well they know it. And in addition, people earn many credentials throughout their lives, right? You're going to earn your high school credential and your college and you may go to graduate school. But then once you're in the workforce, you're going to be licensed. You're going to get certificates and certifications. And there was really no such thing as a credential account, a place where you could collect and manage your academic and professional credentials in one place as you progress through your education and training journey. So the whole idea of parchment was to solve that problem, to give schools and universities and professional organizations the ability to issue credentials digitally um, as machine-readable data, ideally, to make those credentials better representations of learning and competency and skills, so to make them much higher fidelity records, and to allow individuals because it's digital and because there's a network of these issuers that you're going to interact with, allow individuals to create a parchment account and collect and manage their credentials each time along their journey that they earn them. And so you could see hopefully how that would relate to an LMS, but, but it was different enough from Blackboard that we never pursued it there. And so after a brief stint as an academic, I kind of got the bug to go after it and, um, I cheated, which we can talk about how, uh, but I cheated a little bit. Um, but that was back in 2011, actually. And so it's been 13 years. This How'd month, you cheat? Actually. I cheated by not starting from scratch. Um, oh, got it. So I cheated by coming across a company called Docufied in LA that I could see in many ways 
had started down the path that we, I imagine, parchment could be. And so I invested, the original venture investors in Blackboard joined me. We renamed it Parchment, moved it here to, to Phoenix, to Scottsdale specifically, and uh, have been building on it ever since. That's amazing. So you did something that most founders say that they're going to do, you know, in their early stage pitch decks. And um, as an investor, reading these pitch decks makes a lot of sense is you're making a single pane of glass, a networked, um, a, a networked system of record where you're digitizing certifications, paper-based transcripts, dot, dot, dot. And the K through 12 um, issuers are, are using the product. The students are using the product and the universities are using the product. That's three products that you have to be able to identify product market fit for three different sh- stakeholders. How did you go about doing that? Because I don't know many companies in any vertical that have successfully been able to do that. Yeah. Well, first, thank you for appreciating that. Um, if you grab someone at parchment, which you probably shouldn't grab them, but if you talk to someone at parchment, um, they will tell you that one of the things we talk about in orientation is that parchment can be a really difficult place to work. Um, And I explained the reason why parchment can be a difficult place to work is not because, you know, people are difficult or, you know, we have a great culture. It's because most companies at our size and stage, so our financials are a little bit public because we announced our sale to Instructure and we're a little bit over $100 in revenue. Um, But throughout our journey to that point, most companies of our size and stage have one product in one market that they're looking to dominate or create the category and dominate. And there's a certain kind of organizing focus that that oneness brings to you, right? We're all rowing in the same direction. We're all about like a blackboard. We just wanted to prove the LMS market was enterprise. And then we wanted to win more than our fair share of the LMS market. And that kept us super, super busy up until interestingly around hundred million in revenues, a little bit small around 75 million of revenues And then at Blackboard, we started to look at the next product and the next product and kind of where do we go. But Parchment, from the beginning, exactly as you described it, we had to have to be a K-12. We actually started in K-12. So to be a high school issuer, you need to have a university admissions receiving experience. And then because our mission was about the learner collecting and managing their credentials, we had to sell enterprise software or SaaS to school districts, but make sure that our contracts and our product experience gave us direct relationships with the learner, right? So you as a high school had all sorts of settings and features and preferences, but you didn't get to tell us that the learner can't at a different school have a different experience. And Mm -hmm. so we were B to B to C. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, that makes, that's really hard in terms of the question of how do you do it? Gosh, I'm not sure there's a, a single answer, but a lot of it was mission-based coming back to the problem that we're trying to solve. And the reason why it's a difficult problem to solve is because to really solve it well, you have to have multiple products in multiple markets from the start. And what we're trying to do is optimize for one stakeholder, which was the consumer, the learner. And by having the learner as our North star, you know, so I would not to over answer the question, but I would visit a counselor's, And one counselor in particular said, I love parchment because once a month I can log in, I can see all my transcript requests, 
Students aren't lining up at my desk. I can charge fees online. I have no petty cash. And it gets sent electronically. I can know that it was downloaded. There's no cost printing and mailing. Can you figure out the problem in that statement? It's once a month. Mm-hmm. Now, she didn't sign up to be an Uber driver. She signed up for an enterprise software, you know, to solve the problem of the high school issuing transcripts. But for us to deliver a B2B2C experience, we can't have students ordering transcripts online and then a month later get the email confirmation that it's been sent. Right. right? They're going to call our support. They're going to call the college. So optimizing for the best collective experience is really difficult, but it also became the North Star of the company. So you basically took one of the share the shareholders and you leaned in heavily into that to make sure that universally that was the North Star, as you said, and then basically built off the the receiving end. What about the K through twelve issuers? Was that a, a cultural battle trying to get them to digitize and to, to adopt the platform? You know, not as much because K twelve first off just very resource constrained. So. Not having to print them out. I mean, there was just a bunch of reasons why it was operationally better. Plus, most K-12 transcripts are going to college admissions offices. So the network value proposition that we have, you know, over 80% of admissions offices, now it's probably over 90%, you know, able to receive through parchment, all of that just made a ton of sense. And they're a little less proprietary over the learner because they recognize that they're going on to college and so on. Higher ed issuing, that was a challenge where many universities are used to, because they're bigger price tag, they're used to telling the SaaS provider, you know, these are the terms. You're going to be white labeled or we're going to turn off this feature or turn on that feature. And they're very, um, yeah, they're very controlling of the experience of the learner. So to say, no, it's more like you're joining a network and there's a bunch of things that have to be consistent across that network that took years to get them to ultimately accept. So the vision of Parchment being a network, was that the original vision of the company or was that something that you had to pivot into? Like, I mean, hindsight, it's, you know, you can say, oh, well, that was the vision. But like, generally speaking, you're working with all these shareholders. You might have came in with one idea and left with another idea. What was that journey like? Uh it's a little difficult to believe, but no, I mean, that really was the vision and things roughly proceeded. The piece that I didn't appreciate, which is the piece that DocuFi brought to the table, is a lot of my motivation. You know, the concept of is it a vitamin or is it a painkiller, right? If what I described to you was a vitamin understanding of parchment, that we want learners to be able to collect and manage their credentials throughout their education and training journey. And we want credentials to be digital And we want them to be higher fidelity records for admissions and employment. And that all matters. But that's a little bit of a vitamin. The painkiller was getting rid of paper. The painkiller was, right, automating a manual process, getting rid of paper, making it a lot more secure, a lot more efficient. DocuFied, which became parchment, um, really began in uh, that painkiller side of the house. It began as get rid of paper, make things electronic. And so that piece, I didn't appreciate how valuable just getting rid of paper is, uh, which then gave us the permission to do the vitamin stuff of building the network and uh, innovating the credential. So from someone who's had decades of building software and education, you look great, by the way. 
right, for having <laughs> multi-decades in, in education. What, um, what is the, the, the pain point now within educators? I mean, I, I read stuff on the news. I hear uh, students aren't paying their loans um, because of that loan forgiveness. Um, you know, enrollments are down. Like, what, what are some of the things that you hear murmuring from in the educational community? Yeah, I think it's a little different between K-12 and higher ed. When it comes to technology, I would say, you know, the biggest topic, I mean, there's security and privacy, AI, there's a bunch of things out there. But a really big topic is just how fragmented things have become again. And we probably experience, you may as a parent, which I know you are from our conversation, you know, my kids go to a class where I'm getting asked to enroll in a bunch of different things. You know, there's Remind and there's the LMS and there's different learning applications and parents don't want to be systems integrators. So I think we're looking, I think there's an inflection point to come when the movement towards mobile computing and the empowerment of teachers to begin to adopt technology at the classroom level and not just wait for the school district or the university, which is Mm. a good thing, you know, that that ballooning of the ed tech ecosystem begins to concentrate again so that there's a more cohesive experience and a more secure experience for, for students and families. But in general, I mean, in, in, in K-12, I tend to think the two biggest issues are math achievement. We saw uh, math scores drop precipitously uh, coming out of COVID and that there is yeah. a math crisis in our country and it's teacher retention and teacher qualification and teacher yeah. engagement. Teachers are under fire. Um, there's a lot of performative politics in education, unfortunately, right now. And that distracts from the real issues like math education, like, you know, teacher retention and engagement. Higher ed, what you noted, I would say, is probably the top issue, which mm-hmm. is there's a demographic cliff coming in terms of just, you know, the Great Recession and births. So we're going, we're heading into the lowest point of possible graduating high school students coming into higher ed. And then when you add to that, this growing rhetoric around is college worth it? Mm -hmm. And the increase in alternative credentialing pathways, like getting a Google certificate or what have you, you know, you have a double whammy, a decreased percentage of seniors going straight into higher ed and fewer overall seniors, you know, that that percentage is calculated to. And that's particularly true of men, of boys. So there's a, a, a male crisis in higher ed where more and more campuses are 60, 65, 70% female because really? where we've seen the drop in attendance and participation is, is male. So when males. you hear the argument, is college worth it, what, do you, what goes in your head? Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Hard stop, I mean, yes. So look, it's one of those things that how you study it, right? Like a lot of research questions. But the vast preponderance of research on the income that you generate, you know, with a college degree over a period of time versus without would say it's worth it. Two, there's more to a higher ed degree than just income, right? There's being a good citizen, a good human. I know that it's out of vogue to talk about the value of a liberal arts education, Mm -hmm. but as a human, I think higher ed is worth it. You know, in addition to as a potential worker. Now, 
Is all of higher ed worth it? No, no. It makes no sense to spend $300,000 necessarily on a private degree and a degree major where a state institution could perform just as well for you. Your degree major matters a lot in whether higher ed is worth it. There's a lot more variation in outcomes at the level of the degree major than the college. We all tend to think your biggest choice is your college, but your biggest choice is your degree major at that college, right? A Harvard graduate, I mean, Harvard is, you know, let's not use Harvard. Let's use, you know, a Tulane, Vanderbilt, Tufts graduate in social work, you know, versus a Wyoming University, you know, graduate in geology, right? It's the degree major that matters a lot more than, you know, than the institution. Are you seeing that uh, students are... I don't know if the word's capable, but like are informed enough to make degree decisions, you know, at that age? Are students capable? Well, I mean, first off, we have to remember that the view of most college students being 18 to 21 year olds living in a dorm, that's not the majority of higher ed, Mm. you know, in terms of age and and life situation. Um, But even if we look at just sort of that quote unquote traditional population, That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know. I I think institutions are trying to get better at showing it. Mm -hmm. The government is getting better at showing it with things like the college scorecard, which gets down to the degree major. Um, I think cutting edge colleges are showing students kind of here's what the job market looks like for this particular degree major. Um, Here's the payback period. But no, I, I mean, just as a typical parent, I have a junior is she two years away from making, you know, the calculation we just talked about? Absolutely not. Right. And, you know, and I feel like it's one of those things, but I mean, whether that they're going to get more exposure to that than just sitting at home, right. Working at Starbucks, you know, so, you know, you're going to get more exposure from college. Um, is it optimal? No, but what, 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 you know, institution in the United States is, you know, built for optimization, not healthcare. So, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. But I can say it is something that colleges, you know, are are trying to do better. And it's an argument for not necessarily going straight into higher education, but having some experience so that when you make the investment, you know, you're, you're in the right field. Uh, So Matt, now that we're coming to a close, a couple canned questions. What is your favorite book? Um, my, uh, favorite technology entrepreneurship book is an older book now called Accidental Empires. And it kind of talks about the early days of the PC industry, but I think it touches on concepts and an ethos that is very much true today. Um, my favorite overall book is probably the Metaphysical Club, which is a philosophy history book about, the creation, the rise of uh, pragmatism, which is an American philosophical tradition. Interesting. I'm going to write that one down. I'm reading the uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance right now. I've never read it, but it's one of those that you feel like you've heard it paraphrased. So (laughs) it's like a classified as a philosophy book. So I'm like, okay. So (laughs) I found it on my bookshelf. I was like, I guess it, it kind of is. Um, Great. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for coming. Uh, congratulations on the sale and best of luck on your next uh, endeavor. I want in if you take early stage capital. 
Well, uh, you didn't see all the ups and downs along the way, but thank you. I have a great team um, that I've had a chance to work with and appreciate you hosting the podcast and including awesome. me. Take care. Everybody, thank you for listening. If you liked it, please subscribe. Tell a friend. We drop, a so, drop an episode every Tuesday, and we will see you next week. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.